Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 486 for the 27th of March, 2016. This week, Apple seems to have prevailed in the first round of its battle with the FBI over an encrypted phone, but nobody is really a winner. Disk drives with moving parts may be dead, but they don't know it yet. In short circuits, hospitals are being attacked by malware. Longtime Intel CEO Andy Grove has died. The surprise from Adobe that wasn't a surprise, and a warning from the U.S. Treasury that wasn't. In spare parts, only on the website, marketing pros may be replaced by robots, trying to make tech support more personable, and a plan to make genetic research more accessible. I'm calling it an overreach by the FBI, but maybe Tim Cook overreached too. The FBI attempted to use an antique law to force Apple programmers to write code that would allow the government agency to have access to an iPhone used by one of the San Bernardino terrorists, but it would give similar access to every other iPhone in the world. As this story spins out, it's not really looking good for anybody who's involved. Apple has worked with law enforcement in the past, but resisted the FBI's request, also known as an order, to help unlock the iPhone of a terrorist after the FBI mishandled the phone. This week, a third party offered to help the FBI crack the encryption on the iPhone, and when any other option exists, the government is required not to use the all-writs legislation from the 1700s. Apple and the FBI were in court because the FBI wants Apple to write code that would unlock an iPhone belonging to a dead terrorist. Apple is refusing because it says privacy is more important than security. Then the justice said that a third party had offered a new way to unlock the Apple phone. That's actually bad news for both sides. For Apple, it's an indication that their unbreakable encryption really isn't unbreakable. For the FBI, it means that the government can't set a precedent that would put Apple and others under their thumb. The government is expected to file a status report on April 5th, but this phase of the case is over if the government can gain access to the phone without Apple's help. So what was the case really about? The FBI already had metadata from the phone, and it knows that the California terrorist didn't make any international calls using that phone. What could be in the phone? Maybe some contact information. It's clear, at least to me, that the government has some right to gain access to some phones under some conditions. But it is equally clear, at least to me, that the government needs to provide a compelling reason to gain access to any particular phone. So creating backdoor access to the phone isn't really in anybody's best interest. Some pundits have said that Apple won the first round of this battle with the FBI, but it looks to me like nobody won, and there really shouldn't be a winner here anyway. What's needed is an accommodation that finds a middle ground somewhere between privacy and security. So the FBI wants Apple to unlock a phone used by one of the San Bernardino terrorists. The owner of the phone, the shooter's employer, has given the government permission to extract data from the phone, 
and privacy issues don't matter because the shooter is dead. The phone is a newer model, though, and Apple has no means of breaking its own encryption. Under terms of a law from the 1700s, the FBI wanted Apple to write code to break the encryption. But this week, an unidentified third party said it could unlock the phone. The All Ritz law that the FBI was using to order Apple to comply specifies that it cannot be applied if any other means exists to achieve the government's objective. So, now the court case is on hold until early in April when the FBI will report whether the third party was successful or not. I referred to this earlier as an FBI overreach. That's because it seems that the Department of Justice really was attempting to use this case to create a back door that could be used on any phone, even though the court order specified only a single phone. This week's events must be a disappointment. But it doesn't make Apple look very good, either. The company maintains that its phones are uncrackable, but here's a third party offering the FBI a break, in all meanings of the term. The FBI already has the phone's metadata and apparently knows that no calls were made to foreign numbers. Apple wants to be able to assure buyers of its products that they are secure, while the government agencies say encryption endangers national security. Cryptologists know that no system is completely secure, and that given enough time, any encryption can be broken. So this isn't going to be the end of the battle, but it probably is the end of the first phase of the battle. It seems unlikely that the government will continue to pursue the case in court and will instead wait for another opportunity. In the meantime, perhaps technology companies and government security agencies will try to find a middle way that addresses both security and privacy. That would be the best outcome for everyone. If you're really old, like me, you might remember 8-inch floppy disks. Not so old? Well, then maybe you remember 5 and a quarter inch disks, or maybe 3 and a half inch disks. Those little non-floppy, floppy disks were introduced by Apple, and then Apple became the first company to drop floppy disks entirely. I thought they made the move a year or two before the market was really ready, but today it's nearly impossible to find a computer with any kind of removable magnetic disk. Now computers can boot from hard drives, solid-state drives, USB sticks, CDs, and DVDs. You may think that the mechanical hard drive is here to stay, but its days are numbered. Whether the disk drive spins at 5400 RPM, 7200 RPM, 10,000 RPM, or even faster, it's still slower than a solid-state disk drive. The merger of Western Digital and SanDisk shows where the future is. Many people already have solid-state drives as the boot disk in their computer, or for some notebook computers as the only drive in the device. Cost is still an issue, though. A half-terabyte boot drive is affordable, but if you store a lot of photos or videos, you might find 10 or 15 terabytes of solid-state drive to be just a little pricey. The cost is coming down, though, and it's clear that solid-state drives will be the future. Computer manufacturers are keeping a close watch on the cost. SSDs are fast, quiet, and virtually impervious to physical shock. Disk drives with rotating platters are still popular because their cost is so low but their days are numbered.
Punch cards, paper tape, cassettes, magnetic tape, and floppy drives are now just memories in our rearview mirror. Hard drives will join them, but when? Gamers and high-end corporate systems have already switched to solid-state drives because of their speed. Tablets, phones, and a lot of notebook systems no longer have rotating disk drives. If you have a Chromebook or an iPad or a Surface tablet, you won't find a mechanical drive inside. In 2015, the computer industry sold just under 290 million units. Most still had rotating disk drives because SSDs are too expensive. The cost per megabyte of solid-state storage is dropping, though, and while it'll probably never drop to the level of mechanical drives, it's expected to decline to the point that many computer buyers will consider it to be low enough for at least some of the computer's storage. Eventually, all storage will probably be solid-state. There was a time when we thought that floppy disks would be around forever. Today, you can't find one. Even optical disk drives are becoming rare, and you won't find an optical disk drive in some notebook computers or Chromebooks or Surface tablets. Optical drives and rotating magnetic drives are clearly endangered. Much of our storage is now on cloud-based devices. Ironically, though, most of those services still use rotating magnetic drives because they're so cheap. The capacity-to-cost ratio of SSDs will eventually approach that of rotating drives, and that's when we'll see a real change. Size is no longer a factor either, if you have enough money. Samsung will be offering a 15 terabyte SSD. So far, no price has been released, but expect it to cost maybe $8,000 or more. Compare that to the cost of four 4 terabyte hard drives for a total of 16 terabytes, one more than the 15 terabyte SSD. You'd pay about a tenth of the price of the SSD. Hard drives do offer faster access when they spin faster, but the current maximum rotational speed is 15,000 RPM. Those drives run hot, and they're noisy. Western Digital tried building some drives that spin at 20,000 RPM, but access speeds didn't increase enough to make them worthwhile, and they were even more noisy and ran even hotter. So the end game, at least for now, is going to be solid state. In short circuits, Krebs on Security reports that Methodist Hospital in Henderson, Kentucky was infected by ransomware recently. The hospital's website noted that the hospital was operating in an internal state of emergency. Whether the hospital has recovered is unclear, but the warning is no longer on its website. According to Krebs, the malware is known as Locky. It encrypts documents and images and then deletes the originals. Data can often be recovered from backup or by paying ransom to the thieves. The ransomware attempted to infect the entire internal network. The hospital shut down all desktop and mobile computers and devices. Each device was then scanned before being put back online. In the online report, Krebs says the attackers were asking for $1,600. Last week, a California hospital paid $17,000 to unencrypt its files. The best way to avoid these kinds of attacks involves keeping protective applications and web browsers up to date. 
Most ransomware exploits known vulnerabilities in old browsers, and old in this case means anything but the most recent version of the browser. Malware-laced emails are also used to inject hostile code, and that apparently is how the Kentucky hospital was infected. Brian Krebs writes, It's a fair bet as ransomware attacks and attackers mature, these schemes will slowly become more targeted. I worry that these more deliberate attackers will take a bit more time to discern how much the data they've encrypted is really worth and precisely how much the victim might be willing to pay to get it back. You can read the full report on Krebs on Security. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Only the paranoid survive. That's one of Andy Grove's most memorable quotes. It's also the name of a book he wrote. Grove, who served for many years as Intel's CEO, died this week at the age of 79. The obituary in the New York Times is the best I've read. It describes his birth in Budapest before World War II, how his father was sent to a labor camp by the Nazis, and how Grove and his mother changed their surname from Grove to Grove to escape attention by the German occupiers. At the end of the war, the Soviet Union controlled most of Eastern Europe and Soviet troops invaded Hungary in 1956. That's when Grove decided to leave the country, and he managed to evade Russian soldiers, slip across the border into Austria, and then travel to the United States. Like most leaders, Grove made some mistakes. One cited in the article was Intel's first foray into microprocessors, the first one the company developed didn't work very well. Part of the problem, Mr. Grove conceded in a 2001 interview with Wired magazine, was that he initially failed to take microprocessors seriously enough. I was running an assembly line designed to build memory chips, he said. I saw the microprocessor as a bloody nuisance. Grove was known as a ruthless and highly effective manager who recognized when the business was in trouble and always found a way to make it survive. Read the full obituary on the New York Times website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. About two years ago, stock photography company Photolia started an inexpensive service called Dollar Photo. All images could be licensed for just $1. TechBiter Worldwide has used images from the service. Then Adobe acquired Photolia for its $10 per image program. It was only a matter of time, I figured, until Dollar Photo would be discontinued. Well, the time has come. But Adobe is doing the deed in a pretty classy way. Dollar Photo subscribers can transfer any existing credits to Adobe stock, and they'll be good for a year. The $10 per month subscription fee includes bargain-priced Adobe stock images at well under their normal price. They're maintaining that $1 per image price for a year. Adobe says that you have to note that unused downloads transferred to Adobe stock will be valid for one year, and after that one year, unless canceled, your subscription will be billed at the standard subscription rate. Users didn't get a lot of warning, though. Late in March, Adobe notified Dollar Photo Club members that the service will terminate on April 15th. 
Users will be transferred to Adobe Stock on a voluntary basis, offering them a better and more streamlined service, Adobe said, with deep integration within the Adobe Creative Cloud applications. Beware, though, if you don't open an Adobe Stock account or use your downloads before tax day, you lose all remaining dollar photo downloads. If you already have an Adobe ID, the process is really easy. If not, you need to create one. Adobe Stock's portfolio is based on the Photolia collection and that of Dollar Photo Club. So users have access to all existing Dollar Photo images as well as videos, including 4K, to license on demand. But videos are not included in the offer. They are available to license on demand for 80 bucks for HD or $200 for 4K. And users who don't migrate to Adobe Stock will not be able to access any unused downloads after mid-April. There is some good news, though. In addition to the fact that Adobe is giving users a year to sort things out, the image library on Dollar Photo Club is the same as available in Adobe Stock. 50 million high-res photos, illustrations, and vectors. There are also more features on Adobe Stock, including the video HD and 4K. Oh no, the U.S. Treasury is filing suit against me. That's what the recorded voice told me. If I didn't call 321-301-1105 right away, I was going to be in trouble. Big trouble. The caller said he wanted to help me. That's what he said. This message is intended to contact you. My name is Dennis Gray, and I'm calling regarding an enforcement action executed by the U.S. Treasury intending your serious attention. Ignoring this will be an intentional attempt to avoid initial appearance before a magistrate judge or a grand jury for a federal criminal offense. My number is 321-301-1105. I repeat, 321-301-1105. I advise you to cooperate with us and help us to help you. Thank you. Well, Area 321 is in Florida. The U.S. Treasury Department is in Washington, D.C. with Area Code 202. The Treasury Department doesn't call people regarding enforcement matters. Conclusion? The call is bogus. Calls such as these would be amusing if not for the fact that they interrupt people, and apparently some of us are so uninformed that we take the bait and call the scammer. Lisa weintraub Schifferly, an attorney with the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, discussed calls like these on the FTC website. The caller may claim to be from the IRS or some other agency, but Schifferly explained calmly and clearly, when you have a tax problem, the IRS will first contact you by mail, not phone. The IRS won't threaten arrest, deportation, or loss of a driver's license. The IRS won't demand that you make payment right away. And the IRS won't ask you to wire money, pay with a prepaid money card, or ask you to share credit card information over the phone. So what do you do if you receive a call like this? Well, just relax and do the right thing. But what is the right thing? Write down the phone number so you can report it. The FTC has a website, and there's a link to that website from the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. And if I'd been concerned that maybe I did owe money to the IRS, well, in that case, I could check with the IRS directly. 
by calling 1-800-829-1040. And you can check with spare parts only on the website. Marketing pros may be replaced by robots trying to make tech support more personable and a plan to make genetic research more accessible. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.